John chapter 6, we'll start reading at verse 36. 636, our passage today is 38 to 40. I lose nothing. I lose nothing. John 636. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Amen. Our Father, thank you for this assurance that Christ will lose nothing. Thank you, Lord, that he has accomplished your will and that one day he will raise us all up from the dead to experience to the full our eternal life with our Lord and Savior. Thank you for sending him to redeem us. And now, Lord, as we reflect on these words, we pray, Lord, that our faith will be increased, that we will have greater confidence in you, greater confidence in your power and what you have in store for us. Not because of our goodness, but because you have given us to your son. You have drawn us and now we believe in him. Thank you for this truth. In Jesus' name, amen. In verses 36 and 37, we saw that Christ insists that they must have faith and that they do not have faith. They must have it, but they do not have it. Although Jesus had amply supplied evidences of who he was, and he clearly taught them what they must believe, to this point, they do not believe. In fact, we will see later in the chapter that they withdraw, and only the 12 disciples remain. In 666, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Most of the crowd of the 5,000, or all of the crowd of the 5,000 men, plus women and children, They abandoned Christ. They walked away from Christ. They refused to believe. Only the twelve remained. And even among the twelve, we we will see, one of them was a fraud. One of them was a son of the devil, Judas Iscariot. Well, if that is the case, that most people who hear the gospel walk away from it, then we might be disillusioned. We might wonder, well, what's wrong? We might wonder, does God know what he's doing? Is God powerful? Is God wise? Is God able to save those whom he wants to save? After all, if the gospel is for the world to believe, and most of the world does not believe it, then that leaves us wondering and even wandering, disillusioned, and doubtful in our faith. Well, Jesus corrects that by telling us in verse 37, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. If the Father gives people to the Son, grants people to the Son, gifts people to the Son, they will come to the Son. They will believe in the Son. To come to the Son is to believe in the Son, according to verse 35. If we come to the Son, we believe in the Son. This is dependent not on human will, but the will of the Father. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, which is also what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 9.16. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs or exerts 
energy, does some work, even a very diligent work like running. He's not saying walking, but running. It doesn't depend on the man who wills or runs, but on God who has mercy. That's the apostle's way of saying it depends on the will of God. It does not depend on the will of man. This is the same that our Lord says in chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. The Father first gives, and then those individuals believe. It has to happen in that sequence. Then we saw from last time in verse 37, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. And this is our focus today in verses 38 to 40. After telling us, declaring to us in verse 37, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Certainly not cast out. He's telling us, he's assuring us that once we belong to God in Christ, we will never be thrown out. Once we are a part of the family of God, he will never expel us from the family of God. Once we belong to his fold of sheep, he will never let the wolf come and steal and devour any of the sheep. Once we are part of the people of God, no foreign invader will come and destroy any of the people of God. This is what he means by, I will certainly not cast out. And then he elaborates on this assurance in verses 38 to 40, that he will lose nothing. Christ will lose nothing. He will lose no one. Verse 37, I will certainly not cast out. When he says, I will certainly not cast out, this is the strong way or one of the strongest ways in the original language to express a negative. I will certainly not. It comes across in English with the word certainly or absolutely. Definitively, I will not cast out. That's how strong of a word he's using or phrase he's using to give us assurance that we will indeed be saved by God. And once God saves us, we will not lose that status of salvation. Salvation cannot be gained and then lost. Salvation cannot be lost at all. We cannot lose salvation. We cannot lose it because we did not originate it. We cannot lose it because we didn't start it. We cannot lose it because our will is not stronger than God's will. God's will is stronger than our will. We're talking about the creator of the universe. We're talking about the sustainer of the universe. We're talking about a God who is invisible and miraculous. We're talking about this God, the God of Scripture. This God that we, uh, in whom we have our trust and faith. This is the God who will ensure that he will never cast us out. This is the assurance that we have, that we will not receive the allotment of the world, meaning the destiny of the world, the vast majority of mankind will never experience this, but a remnant of mankind will enjoy this and enjoy this gift, enjoy this grace forever and ever, because he says, I will certainly not cast out. Verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 38. I have come down. Christ is explaining to the people that he came down from heaven. This is a point he has asserted again and again in this chapter. For that matter, all of scripture asserts it, either predicts it or announces it. But to see examples within this chapter, look at Verse 33, the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. The bread of God which comes down. And in verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Our verse, verse 38, I have come down. Verse 41, 
I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Verse 42, I have come down out of heaven. Verse 50, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. And finally, verse 58, this is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread shall live forever. Jesus clearly announces that he came from heaven. He came from heaven. He doesn't mean that his body came from heaven, his physical body, because his body was formed in the womb of Mary. In the womb of Mary. She conceived and gave birth as a virgin. So he's not talking about his humanity, his physical body coming down from heaven. Nor is he speaking of his deity coming from heaven. Because God or deity or the divine is everywhere. God does not have to appear in order to be somewhere to express his power or exert his power, express his word or to know what's going on. God is in all places. For example, Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 23. 23, 23 to 24. Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? Can a man hide himself in hidden places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? Therefore, when Jesus says, I have come down from heaven, he's not speaking of his deity, for there's no need, Jesus and his deity, to do so. And he's not speaking of his humanity, because that was formed in the womb of Mary. He's speaking of his person. He's speaking of his person who has come, and in his person, he has come in a personal way to announce, to preach, to live a godly life, perform miracles, die on the cross, be buried for three days, rise from the dead for our sins. He's speaking of his person, his mission in his person to accomplish our redemption. That's what he means by saying, I have come down from heaven. He came down for a purpose, which he says in verse 38, not to do my own will, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Not to do his own will, but the will of him who sent him. Not my will, my own will. What does he mean? He is not saying that he potentially or he on occasion did things contrary to the will of the Father. He's not saying that I came for my own business. The Father, though, He circumvented, he overpowered me, and now I'm coming for the Father's business. Or I'm double-minded and I waver. Sometimes I want to do my own will, and at other times I want to do my Father's will. He's not saying anything like that. In fact, what he's saying is, I have never been like this. I have never been like this to do my own will. I do the will of the Father. I came to do the will of the Father. He always pleases the Father and does His will. John 4, 34. John 4, 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Christ's food, Christ's spiritual food, that which sustained Him day by day was to do the will of the Father to accomplish the work of the Father, which we know is to die and rise again for our sins. 
to die and rise again for us. John 5, John chapter 5 and verse 30. John 5, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 29. John chapter 8 and verse 29. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He carries out the will of the Father. Look also at John 17. John chapter 17. John 17, 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He says that he has kept them in the name of the Father, which the Father gave to him. The Father gave the sheep to the Son, and the Son protected them, is his point. He always did the will of the Father. He came to redeem us by dying and rising again for us, and he comes, or and has come, to carry that out, to ensure that that indeed takes place. John six thirty eight, he says, the will of him who sent me. This means that he is a faithful messenger. He is a faithful mediator. He is a faithful redeemer, always doing what the father wanted him to do, always seeking after the will of the father. Look at 39, John 6, 39. And this is the will of him who sent me. What specifically are we addressing here? Verse 39, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. When we read this, that of all that he has given me, he uses this universal word, all. Which word we found in verse 37? All that the Father gives me shall come to me. Verse 39, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. Then how do we become a part of the all? Does all in these verses mean every individual in the world? Does it mean every person who has ever lived or whoever will live? Does it mean every single human being? No, it's absolutely not. He qualifies it in verse 37, all that the Father gives me. In verse 39, that of all that he, the Father, gives me or has given me. In verse 39, he uses a tense of the verb, all that he has given me. When was it that they were given to the Son? When did the Father give a group of people, saved sinners, a people for his own possession? When did he give them to the Son? It says, has given me. When did that happen? Let's observe. Let's observe from Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. He says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Before the foundation of the world. Before Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, He chose us in Christ to be saved in Christ. He chose us at that point, not after the world was created. What does this choice entail? Verse 5, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ Himself. He predestined us. When He predestined us, why is it called predestination? Because it happened before the foundation of the world. Verse 11, We have obtained an inheritance having been predestined. Having been predestined. When? Before the foundation of the world. Does this entail merely that we should live a holy life? Which is what he said in verse 4. That we should be holy and blameless before him. Or does it also entail our salvation? It entails our salvation. Look at verse 13. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Before the foundation of the world, it was also given, it was also predestined that we should believe and be saved, according to verses 13 and 14. Our, next, our second example is 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. 2 Timothy 1, we'll read verses 8 to 11. 2 Timothy 1, 8 to 11. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. He tells us in verse 9 that he has saved us. God has saved us and called us with the holy calling, which holy calling is the effectual call, which is the internal call. It is the secret call. It is the mysterious call of the Holy Spirit who makes sure, who guarantees, who irresistibly, the Holy Spirit of grace, makes us new creatures in Christ. Well, when was this ordained to happen? It says in verse 9, according to His own purpose, which, the, which means not... God's purpose plus our purpose, but His own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. It was granted us. This is the terminology of Christ in John chapter 6. All that the Father gives me of all that He has given me, I lose nothing. When were we, the sheep, the elect, given to the Son. According to 2 Timothy 1, verse 9, granted us or given us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. It happened before time began. It happened before the foundation of the world. That's when this occurred. And if it occurred then, it has nothing to do with us. It, we are the beneficiaries, but we are not the cause. 
We are the recipients, but we are not the trigger. It does not originate in us, it originates in God. It's not started by us, it was started by God. We do not cooperate with God. We do not come to the table and make an agreement with God. God, you did your part, now I do my part. God, you exerted your will, now I will exert my free will. And then we will close the transaction. The deal is done only if I choose for the deal to be done. It doesn't happen that way. It doesn't work that way. Because it doesn't work that way, Christ could say, I lose nothing. If it depends on our will, contrary to what Romans 9.16 says, where he categorically says it does not depend on our will, if it depends on our will, then our will could make us lose our own salvation. It doesn't. It depends on God. That's why Christ said, I lose nothing. It depends on God. If Christ says, I lose nothing, I lose nothing. He's speaking of all of us who are in him, all of us who belong to him. He's speaking of all of us. He loses nothing, but raises it up on the last day. If Christ says, I lose nothing, whose power, whose will, whose authority is greater? Christ. Like we were reminded from Isaiah chapter 40. We were reminded, we might be like vigorous young men. We might be very strong and able. We might think that we are able to do what we need for our salvation, but we're not able to do what we need. God is the one who sustains us. God is the one who empowers us. And God is the one who makes sure that we do not stumble so as to fall forever in salvation or loss of salvation. He ensures that we not fall forever. Or like Psalm 121. Psalm 21, He keeps your soul. He keeps your soul. And He will guard us from this day forth and forever, it says in Psalm 121. God is the one who protects us. 2 Timothy 4, 18. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. John chapter 10. John chapter 10. We read beginning at verse 25. John 10, 25. 25 to 30. John 10, 25 to 30. The Jews, they confront Christ again. They accuse Christ of not speaking plainly about who He is and His mission. They accuse Him, though we know that to be false. Jesus begins to answer them. John 10, 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Christ says that they don't believe because they're not of His sheep. If they were of His sheep, that is the elect, preordained to believe, if they were His sheep, preordained to believe, predestined to believe, then they would believe. He shows them he announces to them they don't believe because they were not preordained as his sheep. If Jesus said it the other way, then the free will salvation would be true. If Jesus said it the other way, then synergism would be true. That is, our will cooperates with God's will. If Jesus said it the other way, then Arminianism would be true. But Jesus didn't say it that way. 
Jesus said it in the opposite way, which is, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. If Christ had said, you are not of my sheep, um, but if he had said it the opposite way, you are not of my sheep because you do not believe, then the cause of our salvation would be our faith. If he said, you are not of my sheep because you do not believe, then free will salvation would be true. It depends on your will. However, he didn't say it that way. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. When do the sheep begin to hear his voice? John 6, 45 says, Everyone who hears and learns from the Father comes to me. John 6, 45. If we hear the voice of the Father by the word of Christ and the Spirit of Christ, if we hear the voice of the Father, we come to Christ. They, we follow Him, we, and He knows them. And then when we do come to Him, verse 28, I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. I lose nothing, right? I will certainly not cast out. They shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. I lose nothing, no one shall snatch them out of my hand. He's saying that he has such a strong right hand that no one can open it. No one can open it so that he loses anything in his strong hand. No one. And not only his hand, but the hand of the Father. Verse 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father, we are one. We have a double assurance. The strong hand of the Son of God and the strong hand of God the Father, they have us in their hand and no one will snatch us out. Satan will never be successful in taking us out of the hand of the Father and the Son. The world will never be successful in snatching us out of the hand of the Father and the Son. It will never happen. Why? Verse 29, the Father who has given them to me. There's our term again, given. Like he said in John chapter 6, all that the Father gives to me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. I lose nothing of those, of all, that the Father has given me. The salvation we have will last forever. That's why it's eternal life. It's not eternal life temporarily. It's eternal life eternally. Eternal life. Furthermore, John 6, 39. John 6, 39 says, But raise it up on the last day. And in verse 40, he says, I myself will raise him up on the last day. What does it mean for us to be raised up on the last day? Raised up on the last day. He doesn't mean in terms of our current new creation. He doesn't mean that we have an old heart, a dead heart, a stony heart, and he's going to give us a new heart, a new creation right now. That's, of course, clear and true from elsewhere in Scripture. But here his focus is the future. His focus is how this salvation is not only certain now, but it is certain forever. It is so certain forever that on that day, the last day, he will raise us up from the dead. And we will enjoy that resurrected life forever and ever. This is what he means. Not only now, but forever. For example, look at chapter 5. John 5, 28. John 5, 28 and 29. 5, 28. 
Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment or resurrection of condemnation. All who are in the tombs one day will hear the voice of Christ. And there are two categories of people who rise from the dead. One category that receives a resurrection of life and another category, a resurrection of condemnation, a resurrection of judgment. Here he's telling us that we are in this category of life. This is what he means when he says that he will raise us up on the last day. Now, this hope was the hope of the people of Israel. It was the hope of the people of Israel. Look at John chapter 11. John chapter 11. In this chapter, you recall that Lazarus died and he had been dead four days and then Christ raised him up from the dead. But before he raised him up from the dead, Christ has this dialogue with Martha. Martha, the sister of Lazarus. He has this dialogue in John 11, 23. John eleven twenty three. We'll read 23, 23 to 27. Jesus said to her, Your brother shall rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, that is, he who comes into the world. Who is this Martha? This Martha is not a scribe. She's not a Pharisee. She's not a Sadducee. This Martha is not a priest. She could not become a priest because she was a woman, right? She is no no one like that. She is the average, ordinary believer in the land of Israel in the time of Christ. This average and ordinary believer, this one says in verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She, based on the Old Testament, knew that there would be a day of resurrection and those who believed in the gospel, that is in verse 27, I have believed, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, that is he who comes into the world. She believed in this Christ who was to come into the world and she was hopeful for that day of resurrection. That day of resurrection when she would be raised from the dead. She thought that Jesus meant Lazarus also would rise again on that day of resurrection. Of course he will. But Jesus also meant at the very moment, that very time they had this dialogue that he was about to raise her brother up from the dead as a symbol and illustration, as an example of the day of resurrection. On that day of resurrection, Christ will raise us up. And what does it require? Believing in Christ. If we believe in Christ, then the second death will not overtake us. That's what he meant in verse 26. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He does not mean never die physically. He means never die spiritually. The second death, the lake of fire. That will not happen to us. You might say, is this taught really in the Old Testament? Or is resurrection a New Testament doctrine? No, it is also in the Old And this would have been one of the many places, one of the very many places in the Old Testament that Martha would have known. Daniel chapter 12, Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Daniel 12, 2 to 3. 
And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Here also, just like in John 5, we have two categories, two groups of people. Those who sleep in the dust of the ground. Sleep is a metaphor because one day all of us will awake and stay awake physically forever. So sleep, a metaphor of death, temporary death. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake and what will happen to them? These to everlasting life. This is, according to John 5, 28 to 29, resurrection of life. Resurrection of life. But the others, all the rest of mankind, they will rise up from the dead to disgrace and everlasting contempt. This is the resurrection of judgment or the resurrection of condemnation, John 5, 29 in Daniel 12:2. And then what will our what will our prize be? What will our reward be? It says in Daniel 12:3, those who have insight, meaning insight into salvation and have believed it, will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, like the stars forever and ever. We will be bright and radiant, experiencing a portion of the glory of God forever and ever. So brilliant and bright like it is when you see the nighttime sky. Verse 3 also says, we lead the many to righteousness. We are a part of converting others to turn away from sin and believe in the gospel. That's what he means. Those who lead the many to righteousness. We are characterized by our desire to preach the gospel to others. This is the way we will be forever and ever. And this is what Christ meant. I will raise it up on the last day. John 6 verse 40. John 6.40. What is the instrument? What is the instrument? What is the means by which this takes place in our life? Practically, experientially, how does it take place? Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. We have covered already, verse 40, this is the will of my Father. And the will of the Father is that none of us who are saved are lost. I lose nothing. But we will be raised up on the last day. On that day of resurrection, when Christ returns, we will rise up to a resurrection of life. But in Encompassing this will of the Father, that this will certainly happen, is included the practical or the experiential. What is the means or the the instrument by which we receive it? We're not talking about the ultimate reason. We're not talking about the ultimate cause. We're talking about something that needs to happen in our life that receives this eternal life. And what is that? Verse 40 says, Everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life. Everyone. He uses another universal term. Everyone. But it doesn't mean everyone in the world will actually do this. He does not mean every individual in the whole world will actually experience this. He's saying everyone who does this receives the eternal life. 
He doesn't say and imply everyone will do this. He's saying everyone who actually does do this receives eternal life. There is a clear distinction he's making. And this distinction has been made earlier in the book of John several times. It has been made earlier several times. For example, in our immediate context. In verse 35, he is declaring that we must believe in him to avoid thirsting ever again, John 6, 35. But how do we actually believe in him? We believe because of verse 37. All that the Father gives me. If the Father gives me to the Son, I will believe in the Son. Verse 39. If it is the will of the Father to give me to the Son, I will believe in the Son, and the Son will protect us. He will guard us forever and ever. This is what he means also in verse 40. It is necessary for the will of the Father to be experienced or activated in our life. So if the Father does indeed do so, what will happen? What will be the result in our life? Verse 40, everyone who beholds the Son, observes, beholds, looks at the Son. This requires not physical sight, He does not mean mere physical sight of the sun, to behold or to look at the sun. How do we know he does not mean mere physical sight? Well, earlier in chapter 6, he blamed them. He blamed them for not looking at the spiritual in verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. He rebukes them for seeking him physically, but for the wrong reason. So physical sight of Christ is not what he means here. Also, John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Remember, Thomas was not there when the other disciples first saw Christ. But later, Thomas does see Christ. And when Thomas, one of the twelve, does see Christ, 20, 28, Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. He declares who Christ is to him. He's not taking God's name in vain. He does, he's not saying, as people do when they take God's name in vain. He's not doing that. He simply is declaring his faith in Christ my Lord and my God. We know that that is true because Christ does not rebuke him in verse 29. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. He's commending people who do not see Christ physically and yet believe in Christ, right? We don't see him visibly, physically, right in our presence, and yet we believe. This is the kind of beholding he expects of us, to see Christ for who he is, to see him as the only mediator between God and men, the only redeemer that we should have confidence in. He's talking about us being convinced our eyes have been opened, our spiritual eyes have been opened to see Jesus for who He is. Not because we opened our own eyes, but because God opened our eyes to see Christ for who He truly is. This is the kind of beholding or looking at Christ that He expected. This should not be new to them. It should not be new to them because earlier in chapter 3, he made mention in chapter 3 and verse 14, he made mention of Moses and the serpent in the wilderness. It says in 3.14, and just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so 
must the Son of Man be lifted up in order that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so whoever beholds the Son may have eternal life. Beholds and believes in the Son may have eternal life. When Moses lifted the serpent up in the wilderness, what was required of the people? It says in Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21, verse 9. When he looked, when any man looked, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. When he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Now, this is not meaning he looked to worship the bronze serpent, but he looked and uh, understood God's intention with that bronze serpent, that God was the source, specifically Christ, the source of, if they understood when they looked at the bronze serpent on the pole that Christ, Moses preached Christ, that Christ was their source of salvation. When they comprehended that with their spiritual eyes, they were not only healed physically, but healed spiritually and received eternal life. This is the kind of beholding or looking at Christ that must Take place. This is what he's teaching us in John 6. The same thing. We must behold him that way. If we behold him that way, comprehend, understand, then we will believe. If we don't comprehend him that way, then we will disbelieve. We will reject him. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. 1 Corinthians 2, 6. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man, now who's the natural man? The rulers of this age, whoever rejects, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Paul teaches us there in 1 Corinthians 2 that the rulers, they did not see, they did not hear, they did not have a heart to comprehend or understand because they were not predestined. But those who did comprehend, those who did see, those who did behold, What did they do? They believed. Which is what Christ is teaching us in John chapter 6. Everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him. Yes, it does require faith in Christ. God causes it, but the action, the experience of faith, is something we exert. We actually do believe. As a gift of God. 
as a gift of God, this faith is granted to us. Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. What is granted? To believe and to suffer. These are two things we are granted as gifts of God, not because of our works. The same is taught in Philippians 1.29. Philippians 1.6 summarizes our passage today. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. The day of Christ Jesus. I will raise it up on the last day. That day of judgment, he will raise us up. All to eternal life. It's originating in God, it's caused by God, and he graciously grants us to comprehend, to see, to believe in Christ. This is how it works. And one final word, and a word of clarification. It should be clear, based on even a superficial knowledge of Scripture, and it also should be clear, based on things that have already been said, leading up to our passage here in John chapter 6. But there are fault finders, there are are fault finders out there, who think that if you teach this, it will cause people to live an unholy life. It will cause people to live a wicked life. It will cause people to be disobedient and say, in the name of grace, they can live as they please. This they accuse us of teaching cheap grace. They accuse us of believing that we could live as however we want and under the guise of Christian liberty. We're not speaking about that. We're not talking about that. We already know that the grace that God grants us to save us is also the grace God produces in us to live a holy life. This is absolutely clear. Ephesians 2, 8-10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. There is the grace for our salvation. But Ephesians 2.10 continues. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The Apostle clearly teaches us, after saying we're saved by grace through faith, In verse 10, Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship created for good works, created for holiness, created for maturity, created for obedience. We are created for that purpose. And one more, Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Philippians 2.12. So then, my beloved... Just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He commends them for obedience, not only when the apostle is present, but also when the apostle is absent. Obedience. But who is it that is causing this obedience in them? God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's grace empowers us to will and to work for God. This is why we should work out, not work for our salvation, but work out or demonstrate our salvation. The fruit of true faith is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It is the fruit of the Spirit 
that we should be manifesting in our life now. Not the deeds of the flesh, but the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 13 to 26. Galatians 5, 13 to 26. No more deeds of the flesh, but now producing the fruit of the Spirit. Christ said, John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Therefore, we, no one is teaching. We are not teaching that because God ensures us, comforts us, get, grants us peace, that he will protect us forever and ever. It is not a license to sin. To the contrary, anyone who says that, may it never be. Let God be found true, though every man a liar. Romans six, fifteen, and 3, 4. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.